This is actually, Carol's just returned from Berlin. That's right, Berlin. Carol's just come back from Berlin, so everyone say, Willkommen. Yeah, so uh, I called her sub German. I said a few things she must know how to say. Ich möchte eine große Kaffee trinkt, bitte. So, you know, you need a big coffee, that's right. The most important phrases in German. But this is the first time we have seen each other since she came back. She came back at like one o'clock this morning. So talking about hero, I think we should give, not heroin, no heroin allowed in church, but, but she is my heroine. You know what I mean? Kind of, and I, I think just give her a very big hand. After ministering in Kinemarisburg last week, flying straight off to Berlin, we had a couple of hours together, and, and then this morning's first time we've seen each other, and we still love each other. <laughs> so... Now, I'm going to hand over to Carol to just open this up. And we are trusting that God's going to do an amazing, amazing work in your lives. Single, married, unmarried, divorced, whatever it is. And when we look at fantastic families, we trust in that the church is going to show what those are. So, Father, you are the dad who demonstrates unconditional love. Greatest dad we could ever have known, seen. Most of us didn't have a dad like you. We're asking today, Lord, that as we teach, you would open our eyes and our hearts to see what it is. The family of God represented on earth. Let it be, as you taught us to pray, Jesus, let it be on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray today, Lord, that you would heal wounds from broken families here today. Many who come from families where they've been abused, mistreated, where, where some of them didn't even have parents. Father, we speak right now healing, restoration. That as we, as a family, emerge as a family of families, that, Lord, the church would restore the understanding of healthy marriage, healthy family, and we would change the next generation because of the way we build in you. Bless what we say, Lord. Cause it to change minds, shift hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, so great to be back. I have to tell you that Berlin is cold, 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 cold. Cold, 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 cold. <laughs> I had to go and buy a new jacket because my warmest, warmest South African stuff is in The wind is straight through it like I was wearing nothing. It's crazy. But it's so great to be back and to be back with our family. I want to give you four reasons why we want to talk about family. And the first one um, is that people who are in families, who are unhealthy, whole families are just happier people. Don't you feel happier when things are good at home, when there's loving, um, open, authentic relationships? And we want a happy church. We go, we're going after people that are exuding the joy of the Lord, that is enticing, and that people around them would want that. It's a great, great advert. The second reason is that children that grow up in families, happy families, whole families, are stronger and more productive. The best thing you can do for your children is to have a great marriage. Children that grow up in whole healthy families become the leaders of the next generation. And if we're going to take over this nation with the truths of the gospel, then we're going to have to raise children that are going to be able to stand in those places of authority in the next generation. And the way we do that is by raising them teaching them how to love each other, be emotionally intelligent, how to know God. The third reason is a really good reason, and it's here on my phone, so I'm just going to look at it quickly. Is that okay? Husbands, help your wives with their mics as they find things on their phone. That is Hezekiah 715. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Strong families... Strong families make for strong nations. The way you build society is by building families. And the stronger your families, is, uh, families are, the stronger your nation will be. And the last thing is what Andrew alluded to is that the family is the most exact institution to represent God on earth. We represent God by showing the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the, the relationship within one, one another that that is the Godhead. God, before he was a creator, was a family. And so our families reveal to the world the nature of God. 
they also reveal the nature of God and the fact that God is a father and he governs the whole world as a father. And when we see healthy fathers, it immediately creates in our hearts and our minds a vision of who God is, whether we know it or not. It's, it's mirroring to the world who God is. And the last thing is that families show the relationship between Christ and the church. A healthy marry, marriage demonstrates to the world who Christ is and how he loves his bride. And when the church demonstrates family in a holistic and great and godly way, the world looks at that and something in their hearts is opened so that when we preach Christ to them, they already have a picture of what we're talking about and it's easier for them to accept. The other thing is that when you live in family, what you're actually doing is you're preparing yourself for eternity. When you live in family, what you're doing is you're, you're developing the skills that will make eternity real and um, comfortable for you. I don't know if it's going to be uncomfortable for anyone, but the, the skills we develop in living in, in family is what we will use in eternity because we will be in family and we will be in the kingdom. Amen. So we are going to look at Colossians 3, um, 18 to 21. It's probably the most iconic four verses about family in the Bible. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, or if you have them on your phones, just turn there. I do, however, think that in order to understand those four verses, you have to realize that Paul was writing it. Paul wrote Colossians and he wrote it. It's a letter to a church and he's He's trying in chapter 3 to give them an idea of what it means to be a Christian. And he starts off that chapter with this. He says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's a really great place to start any marriage or family talks. I love what... Pastor Samantha shared earlier about us being seated in heavenly places. There's a reality of the victory that Christ won for us that is so enormous that it will overshadow every problem, every challenge that we face here on earth. And if we start from that place of that victory, we are either lifted up to see the eternal, to see the, the truth, we will be far more successful in everything we do. Paul then goes on and lists for the whole chapter if we are going to live like this, with our mindset on things about this is what will result in our lives, this, then he goes and lists all the great ways of living that people who have that kind of mindset will exhibit. Some of the highlights are that he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature. Take a deep breath. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. None of you are battle with any of those things. I completely understand, but say you did. He's saying if your mind is set on those things, then you know, just don't mess with this stuff. Just, just put it out your life, get rid of it, because that's not who you are. He goes on and says, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive. So he says, don't you just push that other thing, those, those things out. Put on Christ. Hide yourself in him. Let his nature become your nature. And then he says, do not lie to one another. And every husband and wife said, amen. Every person said, amen. Actually, no one wants to be lied to. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And be thankful. In other words, have, remain thinking about those high, true things. Let that determine the way you face your issues around you. And last of all, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He, say, he says a lot more things. Those are my highlights. When I read it, you can go read through it and maybe find some other great things. But for me, those are the highlights. And if I had to transfer that into a pre-marriage checklist, in other words, now he's going to go and talk about marriage, but he's laid the foundation of righteous living. Single ladies and gentlemen, I would love you to use Colossians 3 as a checklist for your future mate. But do they live up to this? 
they do marry them. <laughs> and if I could summarize, are they living in purity? You know, are they pursuing a pure lifestyle? Statistics show this, that the, the more you're involved in sexual activity before you get married, the worse your sexual relationship will be in marriage. Just saying. So you want to pursue people who are living in purity. Are, do they have emotional wholeness? Like, are they whole people? Or are they broken and dealing with issues? And that we don't mind that. Please, you're all broken to some degree, but there must be a pursuit of wholeness. They must be making an effort to get over their issues. So many marriages involve people trying to draw from each other stuff that that person can't give it. It's an absolute killer for marriages. I tried it with Adam, he just refused point blank to do it. So it was really great. I would go to him and you know, basically say, please, you know, can you help me with my, my finances, my dinner, I would list all these things. Basically I was saying, would you just take care of me? And he said, I love you, dear, but you're bigger than that. He didn't say those exact words. He said it much kinder. And you know what? It was so great for me. I just, I love the fact that he expected me to be a whole person. I love that. And honesty. <laughs> but, you know, guys, if people are like you before you get married, what are they going to do when you get married? Seriously. I mean, if they can't be absolutely honest with you, if they can't be real with you, if they can't show you who they are, if they're hiding stuff, it's a bad sign. Are they following Christ with conviction? You know, none of us are perfect, but are they pursuing Christ? Is, is Christ the most important thing in their life? Do they give honor to all kinds of people? A person who would speak dishonorably about someone, about anyone, Sooner or later, we'll speak to someone about you. And last of all, are they kind? You know, one of the greatest marriage builders, builders is just being kind to one another. You know, we don't always agree, but I have to say, I married the kindest man in the world. Do you know this? Abby has never, ever raised his voice to me, not once. In 27 years or 29 years that we've known each other. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't, doesn't mean he's always agreed with me. And we've had some intense discussions. But it's always been in an environment of kindness, gentleness, speaking well of each other. And I'm very, very grateful for that. Thank you, God. I haven't always returned the favor. <laughs> I just want to confess. And he's still been kind to me. Thank you, darling. <laughs> I was going to go to a cathartic, like, repent. Darling, I'm so sorry for all the times I have not spoken gently. <laughs> 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 you know what's so great about preaching? I mean, God is ruthless, so He doesn't let you say a thing that you haven't gotten right in your life. So Paul goes on in Colossians 3, verse 18, he says, it's, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And I can feel that slight shudder go through all the ladies here. It's like that submission word is like a hectic word. Because, you know, in your mind, it's kind of like, I have to just do whatever he says. I have to just be a slave in the environment. Because it has been used by that in many places. Here's a great thing to think about, is that when Paul wrote another letter to the Ephesians, he kind of mirrored a lot of what he wrote in Colossians. And he talked about marriage as well. And he talked about wives submitting to their husbands. But he did this, which is really, really great. Right before he said, wives submit to your husbands. He said this, all of you submit to each other. Submitting to a husband who is submitted to Christ, to leaders in his life, even to the wisdom of his wife, is easy. 
it's easy to submit to a humble, strong man, really. The problem is, is that we've been, we've been shown a picture of abuse and domination in marriage, and of course that's really hard to submit to. And I'm telling you this, God is not asking you to submit to abuse. He's not asking you to submit to or to throw away your identity. Submission is a principle throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible. People submit to God. People submit to one another. Submission is a kingdom principle. Here's the thing. There can be no change or forward momentum in anything without submission. As a boss, if you can't hear the good ideas from your employees and submit to the wisdom they carry, you get nothing but your own wisdom. Submitting in friendship. What if we all just wanted our own way all the time? I mean, you'd have no friends. Seriously, you'd have no friends. Submission in relationship is just a natural part of getting on. The reason I have that picture of that man and woman strongly about to shoot some terrible enemy in the outside of the picture is that submission is actually a military term. The, the word that they use in the Bible for submission was a military term. And what it meant is meant if two armies, two cohorts of the Roman army, met each other somewhere, and they were both pursuing a common enemy, then what they would do is they realized that to have two heads would be too much. They wouldn't get anything done. So in order to combine that legion and that legion, in order to conquer that common enemy, they would say to the head of that legion, the two, the two legions would legionnaires, what do you call them, centurions? Centurions would get together and they would say to each other, so who's going to lead? And the other one would voluntarily submit to the person who was chosen to lead. But here's the thing, you can't submit unless you're an equal in the first place. And submission means to voluntarily hand over the final say to someone else in order to win a war. So you have a common enemy. And choosing a methodology to be most effective in battle is what submission is. So submission is not subservience. And this is where we get it wrong. Submission is only given and cannot be demanded. In other words, you cannot demand submission from someone else because if the minute you demand it, it's subservience. The minute you demand it, they become your servant, not your equal who is choosing to follow you. Submission is all about mission alignment. It's about two people saying we want to get to the same goal together. Subservience is about one person's mission dominating the other one. Submission is about celebrating diversity. It's about saying we different, we have different skills, different abilities, and we want to use them together to accomplish the goal. Subservience is about loss of personal identity. I subject my desires and my passions to yours. And that's not what submission is at all. Submission is I have passions and desires, and together. We are, we are going to align those together. We're going to decide on common goals, and I'm going to choose you to lead us to those common goals. Yeah. In submission, our strengths are maximized. And in subservience, weakness is encouraged. So in other words, in subservience, I look strong when you look weak. So I encourage you to be weak. But in, in a submissive relationship, is that the stronger the person submitting to you, the better you look. And in submission, we are better together. In subservience, there is no togetherness. In submission, 
The love that we have for one another releases a power to get things done. And it's a servience. You know, how, how many of you hate being manipulated? And the rest of you love it. <laughs> but do you know where people manipulate? Have you ever thought about this? It's when I feel powerless and I don't feel like my voice is heard, then I have to find other ways to get down what I want. So if you're in an environment where someone is manipulating you, the first question you have to ask yourself is why do I feel too powerless to just tell me what they need? And in marriage, if there is manipulation going on from either party, that's a sure sign that someone is feeling powerless in the relationship. And if you deal with that sense of powerlessness, that manipulation will go in an So, ladies and gentlemen, in this beautiful, beautiful picture of submission, it's very easy. Well, no, let me rather put it this way. Marriage is the most beautiful, the most beautiful place to deal with yourself. Yes. <laughs> the greatest motivation towards change in my life has been my husband. <laughs> I think he feels the same about me. I just did it more loudly and coarsely. <laughs> but you know what is great? That we, we all have blind spots and in marriage you have a safe environment where someone can tell you what's wrong and still love you. Where you can admit your weaknesses and still be loved because it's a covenant. It can't be broken. Isn't that great? So here's a video that I think you'll enjoy. You know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me. And I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head. And it's relentless. And I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean that's the thing that scares me most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. <laughs> <laughs> you have a nail in your head. It's not about the nail. Are you sure? Because if we, we got that out of there. Stop trying just, to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, out. <laughs> okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. Sometimes it's like there's this achy, and I don't know what it is. All the sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. dysfunctional family. My father was one of those men who believed that wives submit to your husband's men. Are you questioning me, woman? Did you ever hear that in your home? Possibly. Are you questioning my authority? That was a common comment 
And then we got married, you asked me that, and I said yes. Correct, and, and I didn't know what to do. So you were supposed to answer back, go to your room. So it's my, it's my room too. Come with, I want to talk to you. So Carol has changed me in every good way. I often say to people, anything good that's in me, and the pride and the arrogance that has been knocked out of me has been because of my wife. And you know, it's not always pleasant when someone's knocking the pride out of you because pride by itself does not want to be knocked out. Ever noticed that? It's like, I'm right, pride says. And so to get rid of pride is a lot of inward fighting. I was, I was a fairly proud, arrogant person. I believed I could do anything. I was the best at everything. I was better than everyone else. Well, to an extent. And, um, and Carol showed me that uh, I wasn't. <laughs> and, and in a good way, we had to work it out. And there's some things that you don't know about marriage is that you're on the same team. Because a lot of married couples forget you're wearing the same jersey. You know, right? If Senegal had to put on one of the other jerseys, you know, you'd, there'd be confusion in the ranks. Now, I can bet you that during that soccer match, some of the players did not enjoy what one of the others did. You should have passed the ball. If I passed the ball, you would have messed it up. No, you should have passed the ball. You were in the wrong position. Have you ever seen that in a soccer match, right? I know rugby, they never do that, so I'm using soccer as an example. I watch more soccer than rugby. I'm sorry, man. But when you're wearing the same jersey, you get over your differences because you're facing the same enemy. C.S. Lewis described friendship and intimacy. Friendship is where two people are standing side by side, facing a common goal, walking in the same direction. Intimacy is when those two friends are able to look each other in the eye and be able to relate like this as well as like that. But now the problem is that a lot of marriages tend to try, as Carol said, draw on one another what God can only supply in life. I mean, consider the realities of marriage. Two people who grow up in completely different families, completely different cultures, some of them completely different languages, and a completely different model of how our husband and wife relate to each other. Some of you come in without even having had parents, 50% of people in South Africa, 50% of children in South Africa, are growing up in homes without one or both parents. So that's approximately half according to statistics. And if we look at people coming from all these different backgrounds, and most of you have had a bad image of what marriage looks like, right? When I looked at my parents, submission was not a good word. And in the world today, that verse has been used to abuse women, keep them down. We've had so many women who are just, well, I have to stick it out because I've got to submit to my husband. You do not have to submit to abuse. And the Bible says that Christ is the head of the husband. That as the husband submits to Christ, so the wife can submit to the husband. And he says the same thing in Titus, where he writes to the Ephesians, Colossians. He says the same to Titus. They're all letters. That he says the same thing. He didn't know they'd be sharing those letters within a few years, so he had to make sure they all got it, right? But he says, tell the men that must be worthy of their wife's respect. And so, if a man is treating you harshly and abusively, you do not have to submit to that. Are you hearing? God has to break this thing. Now, 50 years ago, that was the norm. Today, the world has responded, and women now have liberties in the last 50 years, more than have ever been around in the whole of history. 50 years. We've got a whole lot of history to undo, would you agree? And so never let that whole idea of submission get taken to the extreme, when really Paul ends like this in 1 Corinthians 11. Not only is Christ the head of the husband, so that the husband can be the head of the wife, but he says, just as the head of Christ is God the Father. So now, God the Father is easy to submit to, isn't he? Because he's perfect, he knows everything, he's unconditionally loving, and you all married a husband just like that. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> we don't marry husbands like that. I've never married a husband, I have no idea what it's like to marry an amazing, awesome, wonderful, beautiful wife. 
we consider marriage where these two cultures come together. And now they are not just going to relate to each other intimately, but now they're going to live in the same bedroom, share the same toothpaste, use the same toilet paper. I mean, this is intimate. And <laughs> they can be in these spaces. Each other's spaces 24-7. 24-7. You know, when you're dating, it's like, I'll come visit you, things are getting a bit tense. I'm going home now. <laughs> in marriage, it's like, well, I'm going home now. <laughs> when God created Adam and Eve, He created all the animals, male and female. But when He created Adam, He created just Adam. And we don't know how long, but Adam named all the animals. That took a while. And if you study biology, there were a whole lot more animals in that time than there are now. And so Adam's spending a whole lot of time with God. And he doesn't have a wife. And he's naming all the animals going, Oh, Mr. and Mrs. Elephant. Mr. and Mrs. Cricket. And so he's naming all the animals. Now, naming doesn't just mean giving, it means giving identity to the animals. Okay, it was all more than just naming them. But he was with God for a long time before God made Eve. Why do you think God did that with him? He wanted to say, man, you are not like the other animals. Man, you are to find your identity in me. I am to be your prime source of fulfillment, relationship, covering, authority. I am to be the one that meets all of your needs. So that when I bring a woman alongside, she can stand next to you towards a common goal. And she is not there to meet and fulfill all your needs. I am there to do that. Do you know how many men I've counseled pre-marriage who are saying, but when I get married, I'm going to have someone who's just going to comfort me. He's going to hold me and he's going to scratch my back and stroke my hair. Not quite like that. But so many men just think, well, when I get married, I'll have that fulfillment. Men, you're supposed to get it in Jesus first so you don't develop a codependent marriage. And too many marriages are codependent where we are dysfunctionally drawing on each other for something that only God can give. And so the second verse that he gives in Colossians is this. It sounds pretty straightforward. Husbands, love your wives. That's it's like, okay, yeah, sure, sure. And, and he goes on and he says, and never treat them harshly. This is the verse straight after he says, wives, submit to your husbands. What are you submitting to? A man who loves you unconditionally. Because when he writes to Ephesians, he says, a husband should love his wife as Christ loves the church. And gave his life up for her. You know when a man is prepared to give his life up for you and loves you as Christ loves the church and wants the best for you and wants to be team, then submission means we can be the best team possible. And there is mutual submission because there are things that your wife is better at than you. And this is the understanding of team. Is that a good leader of a team doesn't say, I do everything. A good captain of the team does not try to play all the positions, right? He knows who's good at what. And when it comes to cricketing, he says, we need spin bowler now. Well, in marriage, it's supposed to be the same. I'm supposed to say, listen, my wife has a science degree in genetics. When it comes to making babies, I'm going to let her decide how the genes work, okay? <laughs> so she had the babies. <laughs> It's about the only place where I've submitted to her, but... <laughs> Listen, there's some things your wife knows better than you. She's better at than you. If you marry an accountant, but you want to do the bookkeeping, and manage the fine, submit to one another, and a good leader says, okay, you better at that, you do that. I learned very quickly in life that I am not the one to choose the parents and the furniture. <laughs> I did it once. It was bad. <laughs> I had this flat in Hillbrow. We got married. Lived in Hillbrow for a first time. I had this flat in Hillbrow, and I kissed it out with pink curtains, pink today, pink pillows. Because I married a woman, right? <laughs> Not only did she kind of walk in, I was like, "It's lovely, isn't it?" <laughs> I also had a snake next to the bed because I grew up with snakes, and I love, you know. Well, I, I studied chemistry and zoology, and I just love creepy, crawly things that fascinate me. She was like, okay, I don't like the pink, I don't like the snake, and, and things had to change. 
Now we need to meet her. wasn't a cage. I just want to qualify. It wasn't a cage. She is twice. She's still in line. She's gotten used to our snakes and spiders now. Our race sons who know how to deal with these things, right? But let me say this, friends. Stephen Herzig last week gave some very good principles. And by the way, if you missed Stephen, it was really amazing. The podcasts have a little bit of a buzz on them because one of the instruments was making noise. Excuse that, but listen to those. But there are some principles in scripture that when you're reading a letter, you must think about who was it written to. When someone writes a letter to you, you don't just pull little parts out of that letter and, and say, well, then this is what they said and what they meant without reading the whole letter, right? So we read things in context. We must also know what is the culture into which he is writing. And so when we look at the culture into which Paul writes this, husbands love your wives and don't treat them harshly. I'm going to read to you something by William Barclay. If you don't know who William Barclay is, he's, he's a church historian, commentator, and he's got some really good stuff in helping you understand the culture today. And he says this, Understand that in the ancient context, this was a pretty radical statement and pushed against the norms of society. Husbands, love your wives was a radical statement. In both the Jewish and Greek ancient context, the reference to women in this commentary go as follows. Under Jewish law and Jewish culture, a woman was a thing. The possession of her husband just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods. Whoa. She had no legal rights, whatever. A husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights at all in the initiation of divorce. In fact, all a man had to do under Jewish culture was stand in the court square and say, I deny you, I deny you, I deny you three times, then she's then you divorced. Now, if you understand that culture, it puts Peter's denial of Jesus into a whole new context, doesn't it? Denied me three times. That was how many times a man had to deny his husband in order to break the marriage. Deny, de- yes. <laughs> and that's why Jesus had to restore him. It was a type and a shadow of God restoring us into the marriage of Christ and the church is the illustration that God wants the marriage of a man and a woman to represent. And so understand when you read scripture, this is the culture that it was written into. So some people say, when Paul says things about women, Paul, you didn't say enough. Well, Paul was already challenging norms where you would have got killed for saying some of these things. Can you see how far we've come? And in fact, the liberation and entitlement, well, not entitlement, the giving to women the authority and the equality that women are supposed to have has only taken place when the Bible and Christianity has gone throughout the world. You can follow where Scripture and the Gospel have gone and you will see Everywhere that that went, there was the release of women into their rightful place. A a well-known prophetic leader once said he had this vision of the church hopping along on one leg. And he said, God, why is your church hopping on one leg? And he said, because the church has neglected the other leg of the women. They're only running on men. And until the church learns that we have to stand on both legs of both women and men, because God created them in His image, male and female. And so we have male and female working together as a team. Men, you are not complete. There are things that female can do for you that no male can do. There are things my wife knows, understands, can see and say, and it took me a while to realize that this woman <laughs> saved my life many times. We need both working together. What about the Greek culture? In Greek culture, a respectable woman had to live a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go shopping. She lived in the women's apartments, and the women didn't live with the men, even married. They lived alone in what was called the women's apartments and never joined the men of the household, not even for meals. Complete servitude and chastity were demanded of them, but her husband could go out as much as he chose, could enter into as many sexual relationships outside of marriage as he liked without incurring any social criticism. In fact, it was accepted as normal. And both of these cultures, all privileges belong to the husband and all the duties belong to the wife. So can you see when Paul starts to talk about this, all the men went, yes, submit to your wife, your husband, wives. 
The way Paul says, husbands, love your wives. That word love, unconditional love. It's not talking about the feeling of being in love. Love creates an atmosphere. Love is not just, I feel in love with you and then those feelings go away. Love is, I have made a choice to love you no matter what. And when we don't get along, I'm going to choose to still love you. When I choose to love, I create an atmosphere in the home in which people feel free to be themselves. That's the atmosphere of heaven. The atmosphere of heaven is the atmosphere of love. If you really love, you will create the atmosphere of heaven in your relationships. You say amen to that. So, if you think about that culture, even more contrary to that is never treat them harshly. Woman was property. She could be beaten. She could be sold. She, I mean, never treat them harshly was like saying you can't beat your dog when it poops in the house. <laughs> you can't, you know, deal with unruly, you know, you can't sell your cattle or whatever. It was like saying that to a man. And when it says never treat them harshly, this is what the Greek means. It says, men do not become bitter towards them so that you are harsh and irritable towards them. It starts off with a heart that do not become bitter. Do you know that the whole world has been selling a lie about women for so many generations that men just grow up sometimes embittered toward women and it's not in your logic. There is this unspoken mindset between men and women. And I want to tell you the enemy works overtime to lie to you. Because women, they do. They walk around with nails in their head, but they just want to talk it through. You don't listen to me. Women have emotional cycles. They, I studied them in physiology. They look something like this. A man also has a cycle that looks something like this. They get emotional. Their mood dictates things. And, and it's easy for a man... To become bitter towards a woman, just as easy as it is for the wife to become bitter towards the husband. And what Paul is saying here, don't let your differences create bitterness. Because if you become bitter, you're going to treat the other harshly. Now, I want to say something about this. I grew up in a family where, as I say, this was common. Uh, but there's something that a lot of people don't talk about, and I want to just close on this point before I hand back to Carol on the next verse. It's not just about how you talk to your wife, it's also about how you talk about your wife. You know, in culture today, men, even though they might sometimes be respectful to the women, they're not necessarily respectful about women when it's just the men. Donald Trump, I don't know if any of you have heard of him. <laughs> you know that he got elected, says something about the mindset of men towards women in America. But he, when the tape was apparently off, made a lot of very sexually derogatory comments about women. And when challenged about it, what did he, he do? He said, oh, it's just locker room banter. Bro talk. Can I read you something about bro talk? And men, I'm talking to you now. Because yeah, of bros. Sam <laughs> Polk this year wrote an interesting article. He was a banker for many years in... Bank of America worked for Wall Street and he said this, for my entire life I've heard men talk about women on baseball fields, in locker rooms, at frat parties, in private conversations. I've listened to men dissect women into body parts. When I was younger I did it too. Casually objectifying women, speaking in an unguarded way, using language we would never use in mixed company, but it brought us together as men. Yet, the everyday sexism I saw participated in during high school and university were nothing compared to what I witnessed in the corporate world when I joined Wall Street. Although women on Wall Street widely report experiencing overt sexism, most of the sexism occurred when women worked in the room. Bro talk, as it was called, produced a force field of disrespect and exclusion that made it incredibly difficult for women to go anywhere. When you create a culture where women are casually torn apart in conversation, then how can men stomach either promoting them or working for them? And yet sometimes women make the best bosses. In fact, it's been proven that investment companies that have women managers do better investment companies or men the same. So men have been inculcated by their dads, by their coaches, 
with an ideal of masculinity and male bonding that includes and revolves around the objectification of women. I can tell you that internet pornography has not done anything to improve the situation. In many ways, objectifying women was the rite of passage through which I and many men enter the world. Men, I, can you relate to some of this? That helps explain why I stood silent hundreds of times as men objectified and degraded women, protesting in their presence would have violated the sanctity of the men-only space, and I would have risked interfering with the bonding that goes hand-in-hand with the objectification of the other sex. And he closes with this, which is really quite mind-blowing. When my wife became pregnant with our first child and I learned it was a girl, I cried. My daughter would soon enter a world of not just unequal pay, unequal opportunity, but one in which almost 20% of women are raped, a quarter of girls are sexually abused and is in the USA. If you think this violence has nothing to do with bro talk, you're wrong. When we dehumanize people in conversation, we give permission for them to be degraded in other ways as well. And even if you don't participate, your silence condones this language. Friends, we have to change attitude, not just action. As a man thinks, so is he. Men, I say this in Victory Weekend, but I can tell you this, the world will not change unless men change the way they think about women. Unless you start to think about women, the way God the Father thinks about his daughters. Amen? Amen. Oh, it's the most beautiful daughter of God there is in the house. I feel slightly <laughs> stunned. Wow. Thank you, Lord, for the great men in this church. Thank you that, Lord, as women, we are so safe. We're safe because they speak well of us and because they, they exhibit godliness in every area. Thank you, men. We really appreciate that. Paul goes on and he says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Again, obedience is sometimes a different, difficult thing, but what Paul is alluding to is he's alluding to an ancient Jewish law that says, Honor your parents, honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Honor is one of the most powerful, powerful forces in the kingdom. What it does is it allows you to learn from another person. Yeah. And when we honor someone, we open up our lives for input from that person. When Paul asks us to obey our parents, what he's saying is saying, remember, remember this principle that when you honor something, you gain the reward of all their experience. And what he's not saying is he's not saying to children to obey their parents about the way they would obey God. If your parents ask you to do something ungodly, of course you're going to disobey them. Behold, the Bible is testing me to the fact that our first allegiance, no matter what, is Jesus Christ. And that if anything stands in the way of us pursuing him, those things must be pushed away. But he's saying in the light of godly families, children, obey your parents, because it will go well with you when you do. And what he's saying is that that honor and that obedience that we exhibit towards those who are older than us, more mature than us, allows us to glean everything from their lives and launch off from their ceiling. What it does is allow society to progress because if we don't, we'll just have to relearn our parents' lessons and then our children will relearn our lessons and so it will go round and round and round. Not all of you have children here, but we all are children of someone. And some of you may feel like, gosh, it's hard for me to honor my parents. But you know, there is something in every parent that we can find to say that quality is something that I want in my life. And maybe there are certain things that you need to reject from your parents, but there is something that you can find. Also, this principle extends beyond natural family into spiritual family. One of the ways, the the surest way for you to grow as a Christian is to find people who've walked this road longer than you. Invite yourself to their homes. Invite them out for a coffee. Ask them questions. Pull at that wisdom that is in their lives. Follow the leading that they give you. Find ways to glean from them. Find ways to glean from them. And those of you who are older in this church, 
I know you don't think of yourself as old, but if you have been a Christian for longer than a year, find someone who's been a Christian less than you, for less time than you, and become a mom and dad to them. Reach out to them. Allow the wisdom of your life to speak to them. That word there to obey is a really interesting word. It can have an alternative translation, and that means literally to answer the door. When Paul, Paul is asking children to obey their parents, he's saying something very significant. He's saying, when your mom and dad knocks with opportunity, open the door. Yeah. Say yes. Yeah. When you're in a relationship with someone who's more yeah. mature than you, and they knock on the door with opportunity, with the, the opportunity to learn, to grow, say yes. Say yes. Amen. Amen. Pastor Hanson, over to you. Well, we're wrapping up. You know, if there are four verses you preach on, and we're about to share the fourth, so we're coming in for landing. Please put your seats in the upright position, hold your tray tables away, and put your seatbelts on. The last verse here, and it follows very much on from this how parents treat their children. His fathers do not aggravate, embitter, or irritate your children, or they will become discouraged. How many of you in your families growing up, and I just go big toes here, you know, sometimes a show of hands, besides you're busy writing and taking notes too furiously, you raise your hand. <laughs> but there were times when your parents aggravated and embittered you to the point where rebellion was the natural result. I grew up in a home where discipline was based on my father's emotions. If he was having a good day, things were good. If he wasn't, things were bad. It wasn't based on what I did, it was based on how he felt, lack of consistency. And I rebelled hectically. In fact, I got saved just before being arrested for a whole bunch of things. And if I had not found Daddy God loving me unconditionally as my ultimate father, I would have a very strong prison ministry today. <laughs> or none. But listen to what this says, and I'm wrapping this up here. In the Greek, when it says don't aggravate your children, it literally means to irritate them through exacting commands constantly and through perpetual fault fighting. That's what that Greek word means. And when it says they'll become discouraged, that word means to break their spirit that they will lose hope and lose heart. Now this is a problem because the father is meant to give identity to the child and most of your fathers may have given you an identity that is not the identity your heavenly father wants you to have. And the part of the role of the Christian life is to grow up and learn about daddy God and how he sees you. And that was my healing experience was to walk with daddy God and see how he sees me. To see how he defines me, has to override those that grew up in dysfunctional or abusive homes. Now, it's interesting to note that the Hebrew word for father can also be translated as parents. In fact, in Hebrews, where this Greek word is used, it is used where it says, Moses' parents hid him. So, it's not just men and fathers, but any parent can embitter a child. Parents, how do you embitter your children? Now, if you're a child who's been through this, you need to be healed. If you're a parent, you need to learn from these things. But there are five common ways in which parents embitter their children. I'm looking at an article from Gregory Brown. One of the ways is by not disciplining them. You see, I don't know if any of you have been around spoiled single children who've had their way all their lives. You don't think they're bitter, but what happens when they don't get their way in the workplace? What happens when they don't get their way and authority figures don't give them what they want? They throw tantrums and become embittered. Not disciplining your child and putting boundaries on them makes them socially looking for trouble. But the other way that's probably more common is by giving too much or improper discipline and abusing them. When children are abused verbally or physically, it sows seeds of anger and hatred in their hearts. And I can tell you this, I had these seeds sown in my heart, and because I was afraid of my father, I was a good boy at home. I was 
meant to be a Christian, so I wore the Student Christian Association badge on my blazer at home. When I got to school, I took it off. I had a bottle of vodka in my one pocket, cigarettes in the other. And when Christians from the SEA said, how could you possibly come to school with a badge and yet you act like that? We'd hang them up on the hooks in the gym room and put our cigarettes out on their hands and tell them, don't you ever talk to us like that again. I, I grew up extremely rebellious. God had to deal with that. But I can tell you this, rebellion is not all about discipline. I knew when I'd done wrong, and if I was disciplined for doing wrong, I didn't enjoy it, but it was okay. But when a child is disciplined, when they haven't done wrong, and the boundaries are not clear, you're going to raise a child who's bitter, angry, and rebellious. Parents embitter their children by neglecting them. And here's a very common one. Either you didn't have parents in your life, or if they were there, they neglected you, they weren't around. What happens is you lack love and affection, and you grow better. Your heart knows what it needs when it doesn't receive it, the heart reacts. And so there's a book called Mentoring Boys by Steve Farrer, and he says every boy needs someone in their lives who will look at them and say, I'm proud of you. How many of you didn't have a father who said, I'm proud of you? Well, daddy looks at you in the eyes today and says, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of how you push through some of these things. I'm proud of the decisions you've made. I'm proud of you that you can to church this morning. Paul Gates, a famous businessman, said this, I succeeded at success but failed as a father. Some of the most famous revivalists in church history have their names down as having changed church history, but their families were destroyed and devastated. We do not sacrifice our children on the altar of ministry. Last two, parents embitter their children by not encouraging them and showing them affection. A child is meant to just be showed affection. In fact, come to our parenting course. When's our next parenting course? Next year. Come to our next parenting course because we do a lot of teaching in this in terms of the power of affection and unconditional love. And it's been proven by a secular psychologist that the, dra- the brain does not develop properly in the absence of unconditional love in a young child. So if you're brain deformed, we'll pray for you afterwards. I needed prayer. My wife prayed for me and got my brain right. Just <laughs> an interesting one. Martin Luther. It's one of the tragic facts of religious history. His father was so severe and so stern with him that Luther found it difficult, if not impossible, to say our father when he prayed. The word father is my represented nothing but severity. And he said this. The duty of the parent is discipline, yes, but also encouragement. Spare the rod and spoil the child, it is true. But beside the rod, keep an apple to give them when they do well. Now, I don't know. You must have been prepared to know that apples are the ideal gift to give a child when they do well. <laughs> Parents, I recommend starting with an iPod, working your way up to an iPad, then the apple. Healthy parents aren't just looking for when your child is wrong to correct them. Healthy parents are constantly, you've done well, I'm encouraging you, I'm proud of you, you should be hearing that all of the time. And then, well, son, over there you disobeyed, you overstepped the boundaries, we need to do something about it. Back then, okay, let's go back. <laughs> Love you. And then lastly, parents getting better than children by showing favoritism. All I have to say is read the book concerning Joseph and his brothers. You might have experienced some of these things in your life. And I want to say to you, God can heal, God can restore, and God can give you a family. When you raise children who aren't better, who love God, who love you, one of the greatest gifts we have is children not only love God, but love us still. They want to leave home even though they're all in their 20s, and I think we'll, you know, that they, they came to. But, <laughs> but I want to just say this. Ben, you are the leaders, and as a man initiates, a woman reciprocates. And men, we have to get our hearts right, understand Daddy God, to be right towards our wives and our children. Because if I am a loving husband towards my wife, no matter how many issues she has, she will eventually turn around and reciprocate that. If I'm harsh towards her, she will reciprocate that. And I want to just say over the men today, let God change any of your culture and upbringing that might have said anything different 
to what scripture says today. Amen. And they women. But for me, amen. <laughs> awesome. Father, we just pray for everyone here. Lord, we ask that your your presence would come and heal every wound that has come from their families of origin. And Lord God, that at the same time you would strengthen them with the knowledge that they have a father. They have a father who loves them and who cares for them. Lord God, I just speak to those places of abandonment or shame or senses of inadequacy in people's hearts right now and I say be healed in Jesus' name. We just proclaim the Lord is God. That these people are free, whole, established, Lord God. We thank you for our children, Lord God. We celebrate them, Lord God. We ask for every child in this church to grow strong and whole and healthy in their families, Lord God. Father God, we pray for every marriage in this, in this church and we ask that you would strengthen it, heal it, cause it to be Come an example of Christ in the church, Lord God. Father God, restore in those marriages their first loves for one another, Lord God. Father God, restore the joy of the Lord in our homes, in our discipleship groups, in our gatherings, Lord God. Let true relationship be here for all of us, authentic, real, godly, loving, empowering relationships, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. And all of God's people said, Amen and Amen.